everybody, you're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, now on iTunes and Spotify. Today, we're here with Dr. Phil Wagner, who is founder and CEO of Sparta Science. His job is using objective data to help athletes and military personnel prevent musculoskeletal injuries. He's also a former strength and conditioning coach and athlete. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me, JB. Yep, you got it. Um, let's back up just a little bit. Um, Marty, how do you and, and Jim know Phil? Yeah, there's probably some interesting story to this. Well, we are uh, we're the strength dudes, and anybody who is, is truly into strength understands that uh, there are three real definable types of strength. You know, if, you, if you were looking at a bar graph on the extreme left, black, black, you'd have like absolute strength. That'd be myself, Steele, Brad, Kirk. Then at, in the middle, in the gray area, you'd have explosive strength. And again, best de- exemplified by Olympic lifting, period. You know, And at the far right of that, you know, white, white on the far right would be, you know, strength endurance, you know, again, best exemplified by what, by what Jimmy kettlebell extended session, or maybe a strong man, you know, dragging a chain or something. But when, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have our little uh, tier one group that we, you know, squad that we train the tier one guys with and, and for our explosive strength, expert you know we want to work with this man because he he brings to the table uh you know i look for optimally in your experts you want a guy who's either got academic credentials really good ones or he's got athletic credentials really good ones or they've trained people and they're consistent at training turning out champions and Phil checks these boxes, and, and that's what we're looking for because he, he not only can talk the talk, he walks the walk. He's got outstanding performance in Olympic lifts, and he has the ability to uh, – the guys love him. They understand he's able to impart to them. Alpha males tend to be visual learners. Right, Jimmy? Yep. <clears throat> and uh, – you know, you can't chalkboard these guys to death. That's not how they get it. You shell them. They pick it up. You move on. And again, this is this is you know, this is this is what he's able to do. So, and again, you know, the, in addition to that, now you've got the the medical doctor credentials. So now we're able to segue into nutrition. And and I love the fact that he's an unorthodox thinker in that world right right and and that's not even getting into the you know the science device world so you know we've got uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover and jim you've known him longer than anybody yeah so i guess what was that uh 99 or 2000 phil what, what yeah you? yeah i think it, yeah about 2000 now, well, yeah, i was working at penn and rob wagner was our boss and then phil was going to med school at jefferson <laughs> and worked uh you know Although we say part time, he was there all the time working with teams and uh, lifting with us. Um, and I think what Phil brought 
Well, definitely the Olympic lifting stuff that I, that, you know, Wagner had a, a, a sprinkling of the knowledge, but Phil was a competitive lifter. And so he brought that in and we learned that. And then we, we sort of introduced the powerlifting world. Wag was still competing and I was competing. Um, and then Phil, I don't know, he got there, he was about a spindly 130 pounds. He left. Oh. <laughs> That's not true, Marty. Hey, well, don't listen to that shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think what you... what you, I was 180. Uh, you were 180. <laughs> and then what, were, what was your heaviest while you were with us? Yeah, and I ended up uh, that summer at about 240. Damn. Brother. There Damn. You go. <laughs> and his strength went through. And I think, that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Phil, but that base absolute strength that you acquired there really helped you with your Olympic lifting, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I think it was uh, an excellent, uh, you know, lesson in terms of, you know, Marty talked about the different areas of strength training. And a lot of times we tend to, I think, silo ourselves off from the other ones um, with the assumption that, you know, there's no carryover, but it's not uh, binary decisions it's more of a continuum right and i i just made a lot more improvements in my olympic lifting strength lifts technique actually following a power lifting program uh through jim and and rob wagner um and and it was just the the gains in that short amount of time over just the summer were incredible mm-hmm. and really it was just you know, working on power lifts and, you know, unlike a lot of Olympic lifters at that time, I was benching and uh, doing rack heads and those kinds of things. Yeah. Phil, how long have you been uh, Olympic lifting? So I started Olympic lifting actually about the time um, that I showed up uh, in the East Coast and met Jim and, and Rob. I mean, I did Olympic lifts as an athlete in college um, and shortly thereafter started medical school. And, um, one of the best things I, I probably learned from Jim was that, and Marty alluded to a little bit, he's like, you know, you're an athlete and guys can feel that when you're coaching them. But one thing you should do at least once is you should compete in a meet, uh, a lifting meet, whether that's power lifting or Olympic lifting, you should, you should really know what it's like to, to live on those fringes of, yeah. How do you perform well on one day, uh, you know, in one second? And, you know, that's when I began competing. Put yourself in the damn spot. Right. Sign up for it and go. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you were going to Jefferson. You were, you were, but just back up just a little bit. So you played football at UC Davis. That's right. That's so you right. You went back there. And then when you left there, you went where? So when I left UC Davis, I, I uh, coached at Cal. Uh, where were you, were you from originally? So I grew up in Berkeley. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's probably why Marty and I hit it off right away. Is, <laughs> right. Because we're pretty aligned. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, growing up in Berkeley and, and, and from there went to Davis, just, just north of there. And um, when I got done with Davis, started working at Cal as a strength coach, and that's where I really got into Olympic lifting. Um, saw so much improvements, but uh, really missed competing. So I actually lived in New Zealand for two years and played rugby down there uh, professionally. No kidding, New Zealand. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I got, I got. Uh, we'll talk later. I got buddies down there. Yeah, I worked with some. I've, I've worked with some of those black guys over the years. Yeah, the Maoris. Yeah, incredible yeah. athletes. Um, anyway, we'll talk on that later. Okay. 
I didn't, uh, I didn't know that. I came back. That's when I had moved to Philadelphia and yeah. began medical school and, and met Jim and really got a lot more into the science of strength training and not just Olympic lifting. Hey, so just as an aside, can you tell the hamstring story? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a really competitive Thanksgiving football game, like probably a lot of areas do. Um, we just happen to have in a school of 800 kids, uh, a few NFL players every year come out of our high school. So it's a very football rich, uh, community. Berkeley? Um, uh, it's uh, right nearby. It's a suburb called Orinda. Okay. Well, Vernon, all those guys from, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the interesting pieces was, uh, you know, so I went back to this game and played and tore my hamstring off the bone Ooh. and, uh, you know, sprinting because I hadn't sprinted in a while. And so when I showed up back top, at Penn, top, top or bottom insertion, uh, top. Yeah. Yep, so, yep, 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 yep. And so when I, when I showed up at Penn, you know, uh, Steele and Rob were there and I was like, yeah, this is brutal. Like I ripped that hamstring up. So I don't know how, how long it's going to be to lift. And they just looked at me and didn't say anything. And uh, they just said, wrap it up. <laughs> and handed me a, you know, like knee wrap um, type scenario, which I had never seen. And, uh, you know, and like, just do rack deads. You can still deadlift, just don't go range of motion. Yeah. And that really kind of opened my eyes of like, yeah, there's injuries, there's setbacks, but there's also a lot of options creatively um, whether that's a performance restriction or, in that case, uh, an injury restriction of uh, of how to improve. Um, now, Phil, really some, Phil, something like that, was that a complete tear off the top? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a complete tear off the top. I mean, thankfully, the human body has a lot of redundancies in it, right, where um, we wouldn't evolve to the way we are right now if, you know, only one muscle did, did one thing right so we have right. more than one hamstring uh i just happen to be operating with one rather than three so on, uh, so, on so on something like that that's as, as severe as it was it, i mean is there surgery involved or you just gotta it'll just heal on its own you just gotta kind of rehab it through yeah i think you know uh a lot of times that uh you know surgery is required i think the fact that um you know, the New York Giants weren't looking for a 5'10 low safety, um, mm-hmm. you know, really didn't require me to get um, surgery to play at the highest level. So, uh, you know, I could still operate at 80, 90 percent, chase, chase my kids around or athletes because um, that's really the extent of my requirements. But, yeah, most of the time it will require surgery if, if you're playing at a high level. So, so let me ask you just real quick, do you fall back on that injury for what you've been able to do now with all the sciences and things? Is that kind of what got you started uh, thinking in that direction? <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, I've had a lot of other injuries since then, but that was the first one that really opened my eyes of, okay, you have an injury, you know, got it, you know, but the body we just don't give the body enough credit of how much redundancies exist and, um, you know, how the body is really a system and that if parts are broken or not efficient, it, it really doesn't change the way that you move because at the end of the day, what training really does the most is affect your endocrine system, you know, your hormones. And if you're not training heavy, 
you know, there's not very many things, particularly legally, that allow you to mimic that same hormonal stimulus. There's a hormonal threshold. Yeah. It's an intensity biased thing. You either train hard enough to trigger the hormonal tsunami or you don't. Yeah. That's and, right. you know, it's interesting, you know, Phil told me the story. I forgot what, uh, was it the Dutch runner? Uh, Finland. Finland cross-country skiing. They, they came off a cross-country skiing, like a arduous workout. Yeah. And they went in and maxed on the squat. Yeah, they're crazy. They're and Phil said, what's the deal? And he said, "It's the coach says, time to start the recovery. We want those that growth hormone, that testosterone. We want to start that process, you know, right away. Um, instead of worrying about overtraining or this is too, I mean, all that shit's mental anyway with, in, that, in that scenario. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, I just, you know, it's just, it's just go, going along that hormonal cascade that you want to, you want to create, you want to create the environment where, you know, the recovery starts right away. Well, yeah. And recovery can be stimulated by nutrition, right, Phil? Yeah. And then, you know, Hyd- hydrotherapy, you know, we love whirlpools and ice baths and all that shit. We love that stuff, right? Yeah. And it, but it's unusual, and especially in this country, for somebody to say, okay, now we're going to, you know, you're going to do your, your max right now, and you just got done, you know, two hours of practice or whatever. But, uh, you know, yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing that 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 Jim and Wags opened my eyes to. I mean, another story during that time was, I remember, you know, sitting in the office and Steele went to go work out, and 15 minutes later he was back in, you know, because I'm in that mindset of whether it's college athletics or whatever, like, okay, you work out 60 minutes, right? Because that's how it fits nicely in your calendar, right? The 60 minute block. Right. And Steele just did a 15 minute workout. I said, that's it. He goes, yeah, yeah that's it, man. I just worked up to a heavy single, and I'm out. I'm done. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, 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 and yeah. if you had worked with me, Phil, <laughs> you too would be going, yeah, that's it. We're done. Right. right. You know, and I think really everything, to your point, Marty, around the hydrotherapy right now, there's a lot of people talking about how ice doesn't work. And they're right. Ice doesn't work for helping to heal injuries structurally. You know, it, it's it's not going to, you know, um, because by decreasing the blood flow of that area, you actually delay the healing process structurally. And so Phil, now Phil, everybody's like, yeah, I feel I've, I've always been attracted to the heat. Me too, man. But, Me yeah, too. but the other the thing is heat relaxes my damaged parts and it allows the flow. I mean, put, put, your, put your ripped or torn shit up against the... A hydro jet in a whirlpool. Yeah. You well, know, when it's 110 I, degrees, and it's I, like, oh my God, yes, thank you. You're doing it. And the thing that, you know, I find with hydrotherapy, like cold, for example, is I sit in a sauna for an hour, but I can't sit in a sauna for an hour straight because I'd pass out. So I use the cold, like interval training. Yeah. It brings my temperature back down yeah. so I can go back in. And my ice cold, ice cold an hour in between. Exactly. My total time in the hot can now be longer, just like interval training or we, flexors. Right? I do this. I do the same thing with the steam bath. Yep. It's intense. I mean, it will roast your ass like a lobster. I mean, you are screaming to get out of that. But I go right to the shower, just put it on cold. I don't even feel it. <laughs> I'm so right. hot. Right. But you go back and forth. 
I remember there was a there was like a 1965 article where Bill Starr talked about oh yeah what the Russians were doing is they were doing alternate uh, extreme heat and extreme cold and yep. the body would open and the pores would open and then you you hit it with the cold water and it squeezes the toxins out of the pores and I don't know it sounded good to me. Yeah, well, I mean, right? it's actually pretty instinctive. I mean, my seven-year-old came out to me the other day, and I'm in a 200-degree sauna, and I'm sweating. And she tells me, she goes, Daddy, are you doing that to make your body stronger? It's like, yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's exactly why I'm doing it. Yeah. You know? But if you're, if you're going from hot to cold, back and forth, like intervals, um, I would imagine you want to end with the heat. To keep to make sure when you're done you you stay loose and all that and the blood is flowing. No 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 no. You end with the cold and you ta- and you turn the cold into a hot and you take a soapy shower and then you put your clothes on and you walk out. Yeah yeah. For me, I, I'm more concerned with how long I can spend time in 200 degrees. That's right. right. And yeah. like, where That's does right. that pull out? In the same way, it's like, how many singles can I do at? you know, 95%, like clusters, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we seek yeah. to extend that duration. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So then you're, you're, I got off on a little aside there, but anyway, so then you went back, you left, you left Penn and you went to back to medical school at USC, you had some family stuff going on. Yep. And that's when you, you coached the national championship volleyball team of the men at UCLA. Good Lord. And track and field, yep. And track yeah, and field. So yep, and two field. national championships there. Uh, we won in track and field and men's volleyball. Two very different types of athletes from ethnicity to, yeah, strength requirements. Um, yeah, yeah, so I coached there at UCLA while I was finishing up medical school over at USC. Um, very different environments, yeah, for sure. You know, what, what, the thing about Phil is that, and, and I, I've taken this to heart, uh, he will go and talk to anyone. He will walk into any office. He will, you know, he'll call anybody on the phone. He'll even just to, you know, uh, you know, I'm like, how'd you get that job at UCLA? I just walked in there and started talking to the head strength coach, <laughs> you know? And it's just like this, this whole thing of, you know, you read all these books and the self-help and all this action, action is what matters. Really the epitome of action is what matters. Well, if I'm going to, if I want to get this done, I need to go do it right now. Um, and I'm just going to, and, and what's the worst that could happen? I'm not sure, you know, you're saying that years ago, because I was like, how did you get that published? Or how did you meet that person? And your your whole attitude was, what's the worst going to happen? They're going to turn me down. They're going to say, I don't want it. So what? Well, the worst thing that can happen, and what motivates me in that regard, is regret. Thank you. That you didn't do it, yeah. That. Yeah, that, that's what I fear the most, is that, you know, I look back and say, man, I wish I did that. You yeah. know, like, yeah. now that's the worst thing, right? As you look back on your life or you look back on last week, last month, and you really, you know, you know, regret, you know, that you didn't take action. Yeah. Boys, I have very few regrets. And you can always say you're sorry, too. <laughs> right? That's right. There's always time right. to do that. Yeah. Phil, did that come to you from an example um, in your life or did that come to you, you know, uh, from yourself, uh, from inside? Yeah, I think... I, I just really, uh, I think like, I guess probably the, the biggest thing is, you know, growing up, you know, I read a lot of books on sports figures or politicians and, you know, I just was so admiring of their greatness and yeah. what they contributed and the work it took to achieve it, particularly failures. 
Um, so I guess it just kind of um, came with the acceptance of you got to fail a lot if you really want to do some cool stuff. Like yeah. you're going to have to fail a lot and you're going to face a lot of rejection. Um, and that's okay. Um, because the worst thing is apathy. Well, and also you have passion for your mission, and pe people pick up on that. If, if so, you know, they're Phil tells a story that he got fired at uh, Cal, and, you know, as a strength coach, the staff gets fired, and you're like, well, why did we get fired? You know, we have a losing record, or, you know, we reduced injuries, and you're not in charge of getting the talent. And so it sort of segues into how you wanted to develop technology to sort of uh, – would you, you know, what would you say to give validity to what yeah. we do? Yeah, I mean, we had in the three-year span we were at Cal, we uh, we had nine guys go in the first two rounds of the draft. Wow, I mean, that's like unprecedented. Unheard. Which, uh, okay, what's the sport uh, for football? Okay, for the NFL well, yeah. draft, had nine guys go in the NFL draft. We had a guy run a four-two-forty. You know, one of the first guys. Wow. Um, and so the athlete development was incredible. Um, the the problem was we went three and thirty one over those three years. Yeah, right. so, and, and so, you got and you got washed out with the football coach. Right, right, and and I was just shocked of like, man, you can't really put forth a better record when it comes to athletes and development. And that's when it got me thinking of like, there's got to be a separate way other than wins or losses that we can objectively show improvements. Um, in strength, in resilience uh, for these individuals. So, Phil, at that time, was uh, was injury a big part of you know the the domino effect here? As no, far as the um, players, not as much as it is now. Um, you yeah. know, but uh, and I think it's probably a lot of variables. That was shoot twenty years ago. Now, I think mm -hmm. you know part of it was you know the population as a whole was fitter; they could handle more capacity. Yeah. Um, there was no social media, right? So if a guy blew out his hammy, like thousands of people didn't know about it, you know, the next, the next hour, um, you know, and so I think that, that, that certainly made the injury concern a lot, a lot less. Um, but also just the fact when you're in a big football program, you tend to have a pretty large depth of personnel and you could break a few eggs, um, is kind of the approach people use. Um, you know, and a lot of times, at least in, in American football. Yeah. As opposed to internationally, where they don't have as many eggs, right? And they yeah, have Australia, to kind of pay, pay more attention exactly. to that. Australia explained to me, I asked them, I spent so a lot of time living in Australia, and yeah, they explained. Australia. And, and, they, and they said, you know why our sports, I asked them why their sports science was so advanced back then. And they said, well, it's because if we break an Olympic sprinter, we're not getting another one for 20 right. years, God. you know, and so they have to take care of every, you know, exceptional individual that they can find. They don't have that luxury. And despite the size of the, the continent, their population is equal to, I don't, I don't even think it's uh, as much as New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty small. And then you, <laughs> you had the Commonwealth genes in there, which is mixed, mixed to slow fibers. Right. Now, 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 Phil. Some endurance people. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to they're, they're, they're party people. You're putting, you're, you're putting your thinking cap on, your strength coach and your, your science uh, 
your medical thing and you're thinking, how can I make this, how can I develop some technology, right, to give credence to what strength coaches are doing to sort of absolve them of, or, or to pinpoint more the reasons why uh, you're getting better, you're getting worse, the injury, um, and, and taking the skill part away, you know, where the coaches are like, well, this guy's not explosive. This guy's not this. This guy's not that. Totally separate with your technology versus yep. what they're. Um, you want to segue it from, from uh, subjective to objective. Right. And that's right. what. He, as opposed to I think, judge, judging a gymnastics competition, we'll give him a 7.9 as opposed to he ran a 4240. Yeah. Yeah. So you developed the Sparta technology. Yeah, because the. Yeah, because, you know, Marty introed with the types of strength, there's one common factor across all of them, and that's force. Because force, you know, strength is the ability to produce force. What's different is the time over which it's expressed, right? Is it a long time or a short time? But the force piece is constant. Or is it no time? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? So it's, you know that's the piece that's that's different, but but that's how we kind of settled can, on. Can, can I give you a quick yeah. overview on that? But this is how we explain it to the our no neck brethren. With with absolute strength, it's no regard to velocity or time. Just it's a short movement completed, and if it, it doesn't matter how long it takes. With explosive strength. It's a moderated payload with maximum velocity, right? I mean, compared to the absolute strength, guys, your payloads are moderate in explosive strength. Correct. Correct. Uh, sustained strength, well, there you have uh, high, you know, high velocity, long duration, low payload, right? And right. that's a good, good way to look at it. With explosive strength, the payload has to be moderated. The velocity has to be maximum. And the question becomes, where does where is that break point? Can you have, is, is it a contradiction in terms to say an explosive deadlift? I think it is. I think mm. at some point poundage uh, reduces velocity to a point where there is no longer an explosive lift. I don't care what they say. Mm. I'd like your opinion. I'd like to, you know, I mean, you, uh, 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 quickly, you have a hardcore Olympic lift background with some serious Eastern European guys. Yeah, that's right. And again, these are, these are high volume trainers to the max. They think of Olympic lifting like a day job. Yep. Right. But however, again, the payloads compared to what I'm dealing with in my squats and my deadlifts are relatively moderate. The reps are low. You guys are doing singles and doubles, right? Well, yeah, I think it depends on the style. I think the U the U.S. style tends to have a lot, you know, higher volume set to set of, yeah, triples in a lot of cases. But I, I was right. trained by a. Yeah, uh, you're, uh, trained by, you're trained by the guys who win the world championship, yeah. not, not, not place 11. Right, not pool B. We'll take our cues from the guys who win. Pool and A, the guy, yeah. And also, the, also, this is the incredible thing that, that I really got when I, I've seen uh, you in action, I don't know, uh, three or four times now. 
there's no negative in Olympic lifting, ever. Right. Uh, that's astounding. I mean, you know, back in my day, that was, uh, and I think Tommy Kono referenced that too. He said the the loss of the press and the loss of the negative created a completely different type type of physique. I mean, you guys are all about the nervous system and explosiveness, and I mean, it's it's a fascinating approach. And, and I don't know if you can encapsulate it and share it, but uh, it it uh, really changed my whole opinion about quick lifting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that I shared with Jim when I was going through this training with, um, you know, individual who, who, who won a silver with the USSR is, you know, how, how many singles we did. Oh and God. there was never doubles and there was never triples. <laughs> it was always singles. And we did singles on one lift every day for two years. Tell the story. Man. What is that? Yeah. What is every day? Is that five days a week or seven days? No, a week? no that's seven days a week. That's oh. every story. Oh. So after about a year and three quarters, right before I stopped training with him, I came to him and I said, "You know, I'm getting a little. The the singles thing is getting a little tough. You know, it's getting a little monotonous after two years because all you do is, let's say on Mondays we're squatting <laughs> twenty singles and you add two and a half kilos." every week and that's all you like that was the progression um it was that's, a straight milo that is, that is correct phil yeah, yeah. and uh <laughs> he said phil do you know what happens uh when a dog gets bored i said no no what happens when a dog gets bored and he said he rolls over and licks his balls <laughs> i said okay i i understand i get it i guess and the next day we just went back to doing the same stuff 20 so, singles 20 singles yeah it's 20 singles it, the approach i got so strong and skilled because yes That's all you do. Do, i believe that you should not ever do more than a single in olympic lift now just right. God, i love that i love so, that yeah. But but how does that single have to be done, Phil? I mean, it's not – you can't muscle this thing up. And that's the reason why you, I believe you should only do singles is because it is such a skill movement okay. that you've got to have full mental, emotional, and physical presence in that moment um, for it to be executed. How, how does this – the you know, the guy who's listening to this in, you know, wherever, Dayton – or wherever, who doesn't have an Olympic coach, how do they incorporate it into, you know, a regular power training routine? Yeah, it actually doesn't take that long because part of the, the singles I mentioned, the 20 singles, there's a you do that single on every minute. Um, and the other thing it really helps with is... Hey, I can even figure that out. That's 20 minutes. That's it. You know, and I think one of the value points, as you guys know from powerlifting, is... It also helps you work on the setup because rather than doing five sets of three and working on your setup five times, now I work on my grip, my setup, my positioning 20 times. Hmm. Bang, 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 bang. And every, uh, uh, the the rationale is that you, you want to have an explosive nervous system. Could you explain how that works? I mean, it's a different, I mean, there's a, there's a velocity thing here that, I mean, with an Olympic lifter, Bill Starr once described it. He said, with an Olympic lift, if 
during a, a, a clean or a snatch, if the lifter takes his hands off the bar, the bar will continue to move upward. That gives them that split second to get underneath it. But the power lift, if you take your hand off the bar at any point in time, <laughs> that bar drops like a guillotine. Yep. That's stuck with me since 1965. I said, oh, that's the difference. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, th I had the that coach, the uh, USSR coach, explained to me that it was poetry and that poetry. you and the bar move together, you know, off the ground and above your head, and then everything works uh, in unison, you know, separate but equal as that bar path goes on. Um, and one of the things we did a lot of in these 20 singles were catches, drop cleans, drop snatches, where you would basically start in a hang position and dive underneath it and be racing the bar mm. down to the ground. And that mm. taught that relaxation and that separation from the bar. Oh yeah, we love that. For singles. For singles. You know, so you, you'd end up starting dead straight legs and holding the bar, let's say in a clean grip, and you would shrug up and then chase that fucker down to the bottom and catch it in the bottom of your squat before standing up with it. Yeah. It was teaching that body to relax in order to regain on that catch. Mm. You can't move quickly if you're tense. That's right. That's right. And the 20 singles, right, just reinforced that time and time again, so it became automatic. For a regular dude, I mean, would you do that? How many, I mean, how would you incorporate that into a, you know, a classical, you know, uh, chest, leg back uh, shoulder day yeah I don't think I'd, I'd approach it um, outside of Olympic lifting in that matter um, you know I think that uh, you know any it, I think it, it helps certainly in some of the assistance lifts um, like a squat because particularly for some people that are getting more comfortable with how to take the bar out of the rack um, you know, what your steps are, what your width is, it really starts to hammer those pieces in. Um, so I think if there's setup type issues like that, or if the goal is the skill of the movement, um, that's when it can be the most effective rather than working on a certain body part. No, but, but, but I mean, what would you recommend if a guy wants to say, uh, you know, you I would like to do power cleans, mm. Phil, what, how would you recommend they, they do this? If, I would do know? 20, I would do those 20 singles, you know, I, I, a minute. Yeah. I have, but how many times a week? I'd probably, you know, do it. If it's a clean, I'd only do it once a week and maybe uh, the other day do a different variation of the clean or a snatch, okay. you know, so you're doing that twice a week. The, the, mentally fatiguing part of what I talked about was the fact that you were doing that seven days a week, you know, yeah. and, and there was nothing else, you know? And so, um, I think once and twice a week over time is sustainable for sure. And also you want to position that first, right? Yeah. yeah. Within, within the session. Explosive lifts first. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so again, I see you know, a lot of these, these, uh, tier one guys, they want to do the cleans and the plyos. And so we clean before we front squat. We clean before we deadlift. And you know what happens is their body or their nervous system or whatever is so excited by the time they get there, that bar flies after doing the cleans or the plyos. So, you know, for four days a week, let's say I'm training one of those guys four days a week, you'll clean one day heavy the next time, you know, but I'm not going to go under 80. You know, clean, you can stay heavy because you're not lowering it. Um, but, you know, I'll go up to 90 and then some back offsets, and then the next time they clean the second day will be – 
you know, 80s for maybe 10 to 12 reps. Um, and then on the other days, they're doing box jumps or broad jumps or whatever, develop that really explosive strength and that starting yeah. at the same time. Love it. Yeah. Are, are you doing any, it seems to be a very hip thing to do, uh, one-legged stuff? Yeah. Anybody? Think, Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Phil. I didn't when I was, when I was, when I was training, at least from Olympic lifting, um, you know, but, but I think, you know, for most individuals, they tend to have had some sort of injury in their sport or their daily activities. And as a result, you know, functioning is, is off. And so, um, you know, that's where the single leg, but the way I look at single leg training, it's not about single leg versus double leg. The value of single leg is it just makes the movement take longer, right? The sustained strength. Okay. So to me, you know, an overhead squat, you know, is right in that same category as, you know, uh, a lunge because mm-hmm. they both take longer than a bilateral squat or deadlift. Let's and say. what's the advantage of it taking longer? Yeah, the advantage of it taking longer is it teaches your body how to perform, you know, produce force over a longer period of time, which, you know, can be helpful for a lot of these individuals that um, are explosive but maybe need more stride length or need the ability to, you know, prolong um, any sort of the movements they're required to do. If you think about a pitcher, you know, as soon as their back leg leaves the pitching rubber on the mound, they can no longer throw the ball. So how can they stay on that mound longer? One of the great things about watching Usain Bolt run is he never wins the first 30 meters because he's focusing on staying on the ground longer to produce that force. But once that 30, 40, 50 meters hits, it's over. It's over. Why? Because he's been able to build up that impulse, that force over time. So now he's got enough momentum to carry him through the finish line clearly uh, in first. Yeah. So you're you're saying he develops, what, momentum or it's like an afterburner effect? That's right. Afterburner effect. In physics, it's called impulse, which is really momentum. Critical mass. Yep. Force multiplied by the duration. Yeah. Phil, on the uh, one-sided training, uh, does any of it have to do with accountability as far as, like, for example, I know sometimes when we use uh, barbells or machines or something like that, the the dominant side will produce uh, more force. And, you know, kind of when we switch to dumbbells, then both sides are accountable and you could quickly identify your dominant or weak side. So do you do, you do that for, for, for those sort of purposes too? Yeah. If there's an imbalance? One, yeah, one of the things that I'm playing around with right now in our research is, you know, actually doing more on that side that's effective. Um, so, for example, I um, – had a go-kart accident in December and blew out my ACL, MCL, broke my patella and, and uh, tibula. And so as, we, as a result... The work Christmas party, that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's always something. I, I decided to take on one of our co-workers who's a ex-NFL 300-pound Polynesian um, who <laughs> obliterated my car and subsequently my leg. Um, and, you know coming back off that i didn't get surgery and i'm perfectly fine sprinting cutting playing basketball but one of the one of the things that i've been playing around with in the research and i think it's the opportunity jp is 
when you do single leg movements or single arm movements, and let's say you're doing sets of five, so you got a total set of 10, why aren't we going seven and three? You know, seven on the weaker side, three on the, the stronger side. Right. Why, when we use single leg training, we get the same volume, but we're doubling that volume on the side or tripling, and what ratio is best? So that's some of the research we're working on right now is how can we be more prescriptive about that single leg in order to make the overall system more efficient? Well, you got to figure out what the percentage difference is. Is it That's 50, right. 53, 47, That's right. 48, 52, what is it? And what's acceptable, right? Because it's never... 50, 50. Right, right. That's and acceptable. Right, and it, but it might be, Marty, right, that it's okay to have 55, 45. Right. If uh, depending no. on a sport, I guess if you're a high jumper, right? You know, you right. or a baseball you guy, come up, or baseball right. guy, right? You know, sure, sport specific. Yep, that's right. Well, well that, that makes where data technology comes in is not only identifying the prescriptive, but also matching that up with the desired activity. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. That makes well, a lot yeah, of sense. But that's that's the big casino, right? Every, everybody could yeah, uh, the uh, qualitative world the ability to define and uh, you know everybody can pinpoint the problem still okay that's great what's the solution <laughs> yeah and it's that's interesting right. because because if you're if you do the uh, the the uh, one-sided movements you're holding each side accountable for for its own um, if like you said, unless you uh, tweak the the number of reps, each side is going to progress at the same rate, and really, the the weak side never quite catches up, does it? Because it's progressing right. at the same rate. Interesting, right? We make these assumptions, like yeah, and we don't tend to actually think about them. I mean, I've been doing this for twenty plus years, and you know, I just thought about it, I'm like this is stupid. Why are we doing five and five, not seven I and three? Never yeah. do that. Everybody's right. like, of course you got to do the same amount of reps, of course. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but it's actually really helped, um, and it's probably not surprising well, that the ACL... Excuse me, wait a minute, wait, 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 yeah. excuse me. If, if you can do, all right, just uh, pick an exercise. Uh, let's, let's say you have some sort of a one-legged squat, yep. and you're able to do... 150 pounds with your right leg and 150 pounds with your left leg. Doesn't that indicate that you have even Steven power? No. Why not? If I can do more reps. Exactly what you just said it means. That you can do 150 on your right side and 150 on your left side. But one of the things I And and I can't do any more with each. (laughs) Yeah, but I think one of the things that the biggest thing that helped me work in at least initially with steel and, and wags was it wasn't the physiological or the structural changes that were the most sound. It was the men- mentality approach. So right now with my knee, I can put more weight. Or I can put the same weight on my knee on both sides because on that bad knee, I'm going to do whatever it fucking takes to get the same weight up on my left side as my do my right. That means torquing my back, my neck, my ankle, oh, no, no, but no, everything no, no, else. No, I no, 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 no. I didn't. We didn't. I didn't say that. But I didn't say there was any degradation in technique or any slipping or sliding through sticking points. Right. I'm assuming everything is even, Stephen. 
and we have equal push with both right and left. To me, well, it's I like I don't I know what other benchmark you have. So then you don't have the weakness. Yeah, I thought we were talking about then you don't have the weakness. Right, yeah. but if you do have That's the weakness. That's what I'm speaking. Well, if you do, then it's going to come up. Oh, I can only push 110 with the left, but I can push 150 for the right. And I rep out, I max out, I'm done. So to me, this is why we created Sparta is the force plate is such a more granular uh, measurement than what weight. Is that? What, is, uh, what does granular mean? Granular means we're able to pick up uh, a lot more of the subtleties and compensations of the system yeah. rather than the sheer output of, you know, how much weight's on the bar. Mm-hmm. How much weight's on the bar is the output the stimulus provided, but what you really want to know is the system, how does one side differ versus the other? And what did you find out? And so we've, what we found is that particularly when it comes to that duration of force production, that's when we see those asymmetries really play out, and that's when the individual needs a, an increased unilateral training, um, you know, single leg or single arm. Mm. The force, you know, just, just you know, quickly, I, I've, you know, when I was at Penn, I used, uh, so Phil developed this technology where you basically jump on, and it's more complicated than this, but for, for a strength coach who, uh, you know, doesn't have an MD like myself, what it is is the force play. You do six vertical jumps, and it gives you a reading. You know, it gives you three variable reading. You load, explode, and drive. They each have different meanings, but it basically what it does is it shows the athlete what their weaknesses and strengths are and what they need to work on. I love that. That's great. Give, yep. me, that, give me that device. Yeah. And, I like that. And I'd just so. My, I would have my people use that. And, Phil, well, just so. You know, we walk into to tier one places. There it is. <laughs> There's Phil's technology. And what it did, you know, I had a thousand athletes. Um, and what it did was the first year, without even anybody using it, we decreased injuries by over 20%. Now that uh, decreased. Well, you didn't, you didn't decrease the injuries by just having the guys jump up and down six times. You decreased <laughs> the injuries by after they jumped up and down six times, you gave them remedial things to do. Right. And what it did was it opened our eyes to, oh, okay, why are we still working on these strengths when we need to get, you know, keep the strengths up there, but let's get the weaknesses strong. And, oh. uh, and, and you know, and it seems common sense, but if you just walk into to a lot of weight rooms or a lot of, you know, universities or high schools or whatever, guys are all just doing the same thing. They're all just doing the same stuff. And human guy, human nature the- human nature says let's, let's continually play to our strengths. Yeah. Right. Right, and and by, yeah. and by the way, Phil, for everybody that doesn't know what the uh, what your system uh, includes, I mean, we're talking about the force plate, which um, is sort of like a, it looks like a uh, floor scale, right? Yep, that's right. That's, that's right. hooked up measures, to a computer. That's right, and it measures force in, in different axes over time, and that's how it's able to identify you know these individual patterns. Um, right. And then more importantly, to Marty's point, actually able to prescribe an action of how to improve those patterns rather than just saying, hey, you know, this is how you move. That's right. it. You know, this is how you <laughs> right. move. Here's how you can improve it. Right. And, and I think we look at it with a lens, too, that's more of an Eastern philosophy, which is, you know, how do we, you know, prevent and enhance the system as opposed to how do we fix something that's broken? 
right. back. And you're and you're right. measuring you're measuring all this through three simple moves, right? A jump, a plank, and yep. uh, balance on one leg, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, pretty basic needs, right? Like, how do you balance, particularly with your eyes closed? You know, how does your proprioceptive system work? How well can you brace? You know, with the plank, and then how well can you express that in dynamic movement, which is a jump? Now, when you're testing somebody on, like, say, a plank, how long do you have them go on each side? 20 seconds, seconds, and they're in one arm, too. Uh, That's why I was laughing, because, um, you know, it's actually a pretty challenging test to hold that position for 20 seconds on one arm, particularly for some of the bigger guys, the linemen. But being that it's 20 seconds, I mean, the computer can get a real good read of what that force is, what force is being applied more of a sustained force, I guess. Yeah, we get 3,000 points a second. So over 20 seconds, you know, that's a that's one rep, and we're doing four reps. So we're, we're getting – and then we've got, you know, 40,000 individuals in the system. You know, that? the database, you know, is just growing and growing, which makes it um, more accurate by the day. So Phil, Phil won't brag on, on his company, but he's, you know, he's in all the armed forces – um, you know, he's got all these universities, he's got these pro teams, he's got, you know, the rugby teams, he's got all this stuff. And I just talked to Mike, one of your salespeople who's a friend of mine, and he said, you just scanned, what, 3,000 soldiers in Australia? Yeah, yeah. So the Army, Army 3rd Brigade in Australia came on board, um, really, because, you know, I think the challenge that we face in the world, right, is we've got a more unfit population. Oh, and God, so... Yes. How can we, since we can't necessarily change it from birth, how can we at least adapt initially in the military and in sports to try to basically hyperspeed them to a place they need to be uh, to express their strength and stay healthy? How, how do you, um, now once you identify, and the way I, the way I understand you identify the uh, deficiencies, the weaknesses, is that all the people that you have uh, data entered for, it comes out to sort of an overall uh, average, right? Like if you're testing NFL guys or, or whatever, there's an average there for the plank and for the jump and all that. And that's what you compare them to, right, to, to identify if, if there's a problem or not. Yeah, that's correct. And and really the the pow- there's a lot more power in averages and there's a lot more shared similarities than we than than we realize, right? A, a sports example is that a quarterback is much more similar to a, a pitcher than he is to a lineman. You know, a lineman's more similar yeah. to a catcher, right? And so there's so many similarities in body types across different sports or activities or ages, ethnicities. And so you know, having that robust kind of database allows us to quickly classify people into groups that allow them to quickly address, okay, here's what you need right now. Mm-hmm. Um, here's yeah. what it should look like. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I thought it was, I thought it was fascinating. I, I heard you on a different uh, podcast talking about uh, we've got so much information entered here and have all these results of these different athletes from all over the world. Our accuracy is so strong now, it's equivalent to the accuracy of, of like a mammogram. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And so really, we start thinking about, for us, 
you know, what's our goal? And we, we need to try to replicate medicine, right? How do we become a mammogram, which we, we've been able to match in terms of sensitivity. And now the next goal is how do we become like a blood pressure cuff? You know, so how do we keep being this diagnostic that can very quickly give you information of where you're at and also what changes you might need to make mm. um, proactively, right? Because as we age, how can we keep our strength, right? And, and that's a real, uh, you know, I think, mission that can solve a lot of the problems in health. Just staying strong for as long as you can. And, and you know, then that's the, you know, JP, you, you asked about the prescription of after you get the variables. The pre- prescription is beautiful for guys like us because it's always squats, deadlifts, um, you know, presses, uh, broad jumps, all the stuff that we have been doing for years. Are, give, are the exercises that give you the most bang for the buck to improve your variables with Phil's system. Yeah, so. we've, we had, a, we had a, a, a client, you know, that an organization that did a lot of TRX as their primary stimulus mm-hmm. um, suspension training, mm-hmm. and they were really upset because it didn't change ground reaction force. Of course. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that's, a, that's tough because right now we haven't figured out how to change gravity. And we'll let everybody know if we can, but it's highly unlikely, highly. you know, that, that uh, you know, these, these ground-based axial type movements are going to affect strength and the endocrine system more than anything else. Right. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a level of pure physical effort and most civilians never experience it. We experience it routinely. Um, I'm, I am totally convinced that the uh, the hormonal tsunami that's unleashed by super intense training, it's a backdoor to higher meditational states. It puts, it puts you into a mindless, wordless state, but it's an electric alertness state. We never, most hardcore strength athletes never recognize that they just think of it as like, you know, the post-workout glow. But that is, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole unexplored realm. It, it can relate to stress relief, post-traumatic stress. You know, we work with some veterans, some hardcore guys on this, and they use hardcore training as, as a number one stress reliever, mm. you know. But, it ha- again, it has to be of a certain intensity. Yep. And if you are able to achieve that intensity, you can get by with so little. Hmm. Yeah, if you can summate that intensity, no question. In terms of volume, we're, we're training regular guys one time a week. Uh, you know, that's what we did at Fantanos. That's what, you know, there's a lot of, lot of validity for... You know, you just crush it once a week. If you're doing squats, benches, deadlifts, I would also add overhead press. And, um, you know, you can get away with uh, yeah. he- hitting each lift one time a week. Well, and that's what, you know, Phil and I talk about that. So when I coach the volleyball team at Penn, yeah. uh, we cut it down to two 30-minute workouts a week. I bet those were kick-ass and- workouts. The first week you're doing fives, the second week you're doing threes, the third yeah, week you're doing singles, and then we're bumping the weight up. Yeah. What it does is they know, first of all, and that's human nature, is, oh, I'm not going to hold back on any exercise. Yeah. I'm only going to be in here 30 minutes, and there's five-minute warm-up and five-minute cool-down. So yeah. 20 minutes of work, you know, 
and I'm doing these exercises that, that uh, are going to improve my score, and it's tangible. You can see it. Within three weeks, you can see it whether they improve or not. Um, and so what it did is it gave them back something that you can't give anybody. That's time, right? Mm. It gave them back time, the most precious commodity, right, yeah. with the intensity, like Marty was just touching on, to teach them to be able to do that, to, to reach that level of intensity, get in and get out, right? Now you're recovering. Now you have chance, time, and life, other things also. Uh, and with injuries like crazy. So uh, well, that's 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 why the spec ops guys approached us to begin with. They wanted a time compressed strength system. They have so many skill sets they've got to keep on top of right. when they're stateside. When they're stateside, you know they got to we got to do judo. We got to do stand up muay thai. We got to shoot guns. We got to jump out of planes. We got to do what defensive driving. We got to do scuba. Dive, you know, on and on it goes. They have no time. They understand the need to be strong. They understand that strength is the premier, predominant biomotor attribute. Right? Strength bleeds over to speed. There's no, there is no speed without strength. So, so we, they, they understand that value, yeah. and they just said, "Can we get it? But can we get it in a minimalistic time frame?" I said, "Boys, give me an hour a week. One hour a week." You know, they, you know, we had them do it. Squat bench dead. If you have any other time, do some overhead press or some arms. Right? If that's all you have time for, that's it. And they were like, wow, we're getting gains. And if you can go 12 weeks in a row and every week you hit your number, it's self-justifying. And they were amazed. They were like, we didn't believe it was possible. Now, when they're deployed, I turn them over to gym and they just hit the volume they're like whoa whoa this is great and so they get that that beautiful pendulum back and forth swing between periods of of uh low volume high intensity periods of uh hot well with you it's high volume high intensity but they're up for it they're in shape by the time i turn them over to you yeah you know um i know jp you want to touch on diet quickly well, let me ask him one more thing. Uh, yeah. There's one or two more things, Phil. You know, one aspect of this that, uh, you know, a lot of people maybe don't think of is um, concussion. Now, you guys are, are working to identify concussion risks. Is that right? Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from the balance side of things is, is really trying to um, identify the difference with um, – standing on one leg, particularly when you eliminate the visual system and the feedback it provides. Right. So, I mean, it, look, we're seeing movies about concussions. It's in the news all the time. You know, there's some there's some big concerns with cu- uh, concussions right now. So, I mean, how – I would imagine that the NFL especially is really concerned with this right now and, and probably uh, maybe the, one of the reasons that, uh, that your system is getting into – to some of these teams, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, to, to some extent. I think one of the challenges with concussion and what makes it tricky is it's very hard to diagnose and say, yes, you have a concussion. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about like a, a fracture or an ACL tear, right? You get an MRI, you have a bone, there's a break or a tear or there's not. You know, with concussion, you know, imaging is, is tough to access. Um, and even if you do access it, it doesn't mean that because there's an absence of, of bruising or swelling or fracture, it doesn't mean that concussion didn't occur. 
Right. And so that, that's what makes it very difficult um, in the research and the acceptance of innovation there is you don't have something to triangulate off other than symptoms. But when an athlete suffers from a concussion and the trainer uh, is assessing uh, whether he's recovered enough to, to go out on the field again, what's the actual test that they use currently <laughs> for that? <laughs> That's what's not covered enough in the media. The <laughs> test that's used is called the BESS test, the Balance Error Scoring System. Yeah. And what it does is it embarrasses all of mankind, the fact that it's used. <laughs> it is embarrassing. The fact that we are putting people on the moon and using this as a test. The test is 20 seconds on each, standing on each leg, and you count with a pen and paper or if you're super scientific, you actually put it on your iPad, how many times you touch your foot down. That is the world standard for proprioceptive testing in concussions. Oh, my God. Hmm. Too bad yeah. it's not for DUI. That's, yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> that's the same test, right? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, yeah, the difference being, like, you know, um, you know that, that decisions are made based on that. And what's worse is athletes are smart. And so if you're a freshman going into school, I mean, we got a, 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 I have a coworker here at Sparta now that was coached by her upper class teammates when she showed up for school to say, hey, make sure you tank that. So when you do get a concussion later, your baseline is the same uh, when you are concussed. Right. But how accurate do you think that really is? Oh, it's terrible. It's been disproven in the research. So, so maybe like 50% or worse? Uh, there's 38% is, was the latest one that I've seen. Ooh, ooh wow. that's not good. So the other way to do it is you just find a quarter and you can just flip it and then you can improve. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a bad investment for, you know, the, this t these teams with these, uh, you know, high-end athletes. I mean, it, putting their people out there when they're not even totally ready to go after a concussion. Yeah, there's really not good solutions. One is, you know, you're, you're, you're aggressive and that, you know, well, you'll be fine. You got your bell rung, right? Yeah. The other one is on the other end, which is that looked pretty bad. I'm taking your helmet away. Don't do anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we got to find a little bit more of a happy medium in the middle. Right. One more question about the system here. What What are you guys finding is the most common type of injury that uh, you're really focused on right now? Yeah, the, the biggest one uh, that, that we continue to see um, is the and, and really needs to be addressed is, is ACL. You know, I think it, we, we really had almost no tangible effect in reducing the incidence. Um, and I think it's probably more about the actual training than it is about the diagnostics that are available. You know, we may be able to identify those at risk for an ACL, but are people going to do the right things to prevent it? You mm -hmm. know, I can tell you that standing on a BOSU ball, you know, and trying to prevent that, it's not going to work. You well, know, so well, what does work? Yeah. So what we found to, to really be effective is some of that single leg training. Um, we see a pattern of people that have ACL issues. They tend to not be able to sustain force over time, um, which almost allows them to dissipate that force. Okay. So, so what do you have them do? So a lot of times it is things like split squats where your rear foot is elevated or single leg squatting where you're squatting down to a bench 
Um, pistol. Yeah, like pistol. pistol. Exactly. Um, okay. Overhead squat being another one. Uh, backwards sled now, drag. Now, the overhead squat would be two legs, right? Right. You know, so it's less about it's, it's the time. Exactly. What do you mean? Um, okay. Now, what do you mean? The duration of force production is what. So what do what we look? What are we shooting for? Um, so one of the things that overhead squat shares with like a split squat that's elevated is both movements tend to take three to four seconds, not because you're counting your tempo, but just because it's an unstable environment and it takes longer. You have to so you're, uh, I'm sorry, three to four seconds to complete the set? The rep. The rep. The rep. Okay. Now how many reps? Yeah. So that's the other thing, Marty, is having a higher rep range. So as a whole, you're giving a much longer stimulus. So usually you know, going about anywhere from four to eight repetitions. So total time would be yeah. what? What are, we, what are we looking for in terms of time? Internet yeah, you're looking, looking about anywhere from 30 to 60 seconds. For oh. the yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Quite yeah. different from powerlifting. <laughs> that's analytic lifting for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, but that's almost kind of a static thing, isn't it? I mean, that sounds, sounds like a continuous. Is that you're looking for a continuous tension? Uh, not just sustained, you know, which can be pulsed. Um, okay. I think like, yeah, I think the total time that the, the joints and bodies under tension is the real goal. Okay. How about, um, nutrition? Jim just mentioned that. Let's talk a, a couple minutes about nutrition. So, so I, you know, half the time when we talk, it's all about, Oh, what are you, what's going on? What's the yeah. diet? What's yeah. doing? When Jim and I and Wags first met, I think the, the biggest thing that helped me, I mentioned, was the psychology. The second piece was the nutrition. I put on all that weight not because I lifted more weight, although I did. Um, it was more because my nutrition was um, changed dramatically. And I guess most of that was probably the mindset. Jim and I still laugh at you know this one trip we went on together um, <laughs> to Maryland. Like We both brought our lunches and you know, Jim opened up his, and there was about, you know, I think like eight hamburgers in there, and I opened up mine, and there was one. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was and the realization and a stalk of celery. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. so it was of how much, um, you know, where the boundaries were were much different than what I what I thought they were. Um, and, and and what was the goal? You know, I mean, the, the yeah. goal was different. The goal was to get massive. The goal was to get gargantuan. You wanted to increase your muscle size and power. Yes, yes. And, and, and train with that kind of calories are, calories are integral to that, you know, and that's what yeah. a lot of people do not understand. Right, right. Because you can't train at that kind of intensity and not try to recover and eat with that kind of intensity at the same time. Right. Yeah. What, so what's, we, yeah, really, that, that sort of, and that's, you know, Deep Esquali's influence on all of us and, uh, you know, we did the, basically the anabolic or variations of the anabolic diet where you're low carb, high fat, and then you, you know, take one day and you, you carb back up again. And, and then, you know, eventually work to, and then you know, Phil can touch on this now, but you felt like cognitively just adding that one day hurt you and, and you felt like staying with the higher fat, higher protein, lower carb. You know, since you have to be on all the time, being in the yep. Pentagon, being in front of these proteins, you can't afford one, you know, one slip up or one day where oh, I'm a little tired and I can't get this done. Yeah. Uh, so you found out physically it made you stronger with this type of diet, but it also 
you know, functionally every day made you a better, you know, uh, you know, made you smarter basically, or be able to yeah. your smartness. Yeah. Okay. But I think that's adding fasting into that. Um, you know, fasting combined with that higher fat intake, um, really gave a, a cognitive enhancement that, uh, was necessary, at least for me. And I, and I do believe <laughs> a great story is my wife, uh, we both went through some, some gut biome testing and she's had some intestinal issues the last year and a half. And we got this, uh, intestinal analysis back and, and she's extremely, uh, sensitive to high fat diets. So she's been eating my diet for the last year and a half. So basically I caused all her medical issues, um, you know, because she phone bastard. <laughs> so, so I think there's the other piece of everybody's different. And how can we better use science to identify, you know, who gets what and how much? What our best, what our optimal fuel is. Yeah, I think everybody's optimal fuel, you know, is, you know, things that are, have complete nutritional profiles. It's not necessarily fat, um, carbohydrate versus protein. I think everybody's going to respond to those differently. But I do also think that, that fasting has been around for centuries. Um, and I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of fasting. Yeah, it's just you incredible. Clear, you got to clear your shit out periodically, That's man. Right. You got to you got to get rid of the toxins. You got to detoxify. Yeah. You got to suck it up and just you know. And then when you when you break the fast, you go back in with the minimal, the lightest. The, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you add back in the clean fuel because it all right. tastes good. Your taste receptors get cleaned up from fasting. Yep. Well, you know, taste the food. You know, you gotta get, you gotta clean it out periodically. Marty, Marty, explain the fast a little bit. I mean, how extreme is it? What, what do you simple, do? Buddy, stop for I mean, for how long? As long as you can hang. Yeah, there's different ways. Yep. And then, uh, no, yeah, it comes down to you gotta stop. You gotta, you gotta stop. Mm-hmm. You hang as long as you can. When you can't do it anymore, you gotta add back in. I, I jump back in with. Raw milk and protein powder, mm-hmm. yeah. and I I can go for quite a while with that, mm-hmm. right? And then I'll add some light protein, maybe some eggs, something like that, you know. But it might take you know two weeks. Okay. You know, I, Phil, I think you were telling me how you sort of came upon that. You were in a airport as usual, yeah. and you like, couldn't find anything in the airport. That and you were like, you know what? I'm just not going to eat. Yep. And you didn't die. And you, and you know, <laughs> and you were, were more clear in your conversations and you were like, well, instead of eating that crap that slowed me down and then set me back yep. now, now I'm just going to, you know, fast for a little while. Right. It's that, that mindset, right. Of like, well, I have to eat something and eating something's better than nothing. That's not true. Right. Sometimes eating nothing is better than eating something. Yeah. You know, particularly if you've got, you know, your options are Popeye's or nothing. You know, nothing is better yeah. than Popeye's. You on Popeye's there, brother. I like Popeye's. <laughs> Sorry. I did, a, I, did a, I did a radio show for two and a half years with Dory Hoffmackler. Oh, <laughs> uh, the warrior diet. Yeah, the warrior guy, that yeah. guy, right? Yeah. And so Dory, I love Dory. Dory gave me permission to not eat. Yeah. You don't need to eat breakfast. Breakfast is not the greatest meal of the day, especially with your giant glass of insulin-spiking orange juice. Yeah. And Marty, you still do that, right? You don't eat, eat breakfast. Oh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't eat my main meal till two thirty in the afternoon. 
Yeah. By the time I have my first, also, yep. If I train my ass off, I will have a protein shake. Right. Now, 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 when you guys are doing the fasting, do you increase the water intake quite a bit, or you have teas, or you can have water till it comes out your ears. A lot, a lot, a lot of coffee. Yeah. 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 And activity. Activity's good. You know what? Around. You really ain't that fucking hungry, man. You know? Yeah. It's like when I'm, I was in the plane one time, and the, and the pilot's like, we're going through turbulence. You can hold it. Believe me, you'll make it. You, know, you don't have to go to the bathroom right now. Right. It's like, you really, are you really that hungry? Those yeah. guys, POWs in Vietnam that were, you know, given a, a, a ladle full of rice for, you know, eight months and survived. I think you can make it without that Wendy's burger yeah. at the airport. You know? Yeah, I think that's the, the part I like about fasting, too, is Marty also used the word permission, right? It's like Love it. you really don't you, you don't need the, the freeingness of fasting to realize you don't need to be so reliant on food is also another, I think, value point behind the fasting. It's probably why spiritually it evolved in the first place, right? to teach you that you're you're not reliant on worldly things as much as you think you are. Well, we love some of the worldly things. Yeah. Jim, when we arrived at, uh, uh, we, we were down in Dam's Neck at the beach. What was that, that uh, the burger bar that you like? Oh, yeah. oh, I don't know if it's a whiskey and burger bar. Yeah. I answered the door and, the, and this guy said, oh, here's your order. It was like three or four burgers for Phil. Yeah. It was like Oh, right, oh, yeah. right away, I thought he needs burger. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, with extra bacon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Phil, Phil, uh, Phil, like you're a man after my own heart. You could eat a, you could eat a, a turd ducking. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and Phil, Phil, it's very matter of fact. So if I say, hey, Phil, you want a beer? Nah, you know, and genetically, you know, there's. <laughs> I just choose not to drink. And Phil, so, you always take the buns off, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. He gets, he gets down. He, he finds the grass. The grass. You know. I re- hey Jim. Jim, I remember at the hotel you saying, "Well, Phil's on his way. He's coming up here with a hamburger. You watch the bun is off or something." You said, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He's not going to deviate. He's not a guy who's like, <laughs> "Ah, maybe this one." No, no. This is what I've decided, and this is how I'm going to live. Yeah. And uh, what are you, what line that line it for us? I mean, it's pretty specific. You, you're very down and refined yeah. car, right? I mean, that's fuel of the devil. Yeah. 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 And I think, it, it, you know, in the morning, you know, to, to Jim's point, you know, I, I'm not light on the coffee side. Um, mm. Coffee and water. He brings really for, a coffee maker with him. Yeah. Wherever go. yeah mm. I'll bring the, the grinder with me and my back, half of my backpack or, or bag will be coffee and and associated accessories there'll be a grinder in there there'll be a water kettle there'll be you know a mug and there'll be you know grass-fed butter in case i can't find something good and i'm really hungry now phil let me interrupt you for just a second now there's more to this than that you're like really like the taste of coffee no you think that this is a, a a positive nutritional aspect to your life there's not many foods that have a linear health response Coffee is actually one of the few things that you can have that the more you have, the better. Wow, like it is a linear reduction in risk of diabetes. Yep. Every cup of coffee you have. Antioxidants. And there's a few other instances. Yeah, the antioxidants are so high. 
Antioxidants are more than uh, more than blueberries, right? That's right. I mean, it's at the top. Yeah. And and then you crank up the volume by adding what is it? The butter? What is that? Yeah, Mm, bulletproof. yeah, I learned this from Dave Asprey um, in, in Bulletproof is the butter helps with the absorption, uh, you know, of that caffeine, a lot of these antioxidants, right? Most antioxidants um, are better absorbed with fat. I mean, if you think about it, right, fat-soluble vitamins, A, E, E, and K, right, they're better absorbed through fat. And the butter also helps stave off, you know, the need to eat again, yeah. right? And, and, and you know, you'll have to with that too, right? Yeah, that satiates hunger. Right. You know, my son was actually born without a bile duct. Uh, it's a deadly disease called biliary atresia. Um, they call it the silent killer because the only symptom is jaundice. Mm. And I believe so much in this that, you know, I put his life into this philosophy. And that when he was growing up, you know, he had a 30% chance of living. And when he was growing up, he would eat grass-fed butter like ice cream. Mm. You know, it didn't. And that's all he would eat. He would just eat butter. And, you know, it allowed him to actually thrive and absorb these vitamins. He has no problems. And so the fat is powerful as a tool to help absorb um, so many of these nutrients as well. Nobody talks about that either. I don't know. No, no. Yeah, a good, a good uh, rule of thumb where they said, you know, other than uh, protein, fat, and fiber, everything else you look at is undigested sugar. That's right. That's right. 100%. Yeah, your body doesn't know the difference between a pixie stick and uh, <laughs> freaking yeah. yeah. oh, a bunch or, of bananas. And you know what? The bulletproof coffee thing sounds weird, but. Trust me, it tastes really good, doesn't it, Phil? Yeah, it does. It tastes great. Um, and, and I actually crave it also, I think, mostly to, to Jim's point, because of the cognitive enhancements are so strong. Mm-hmm. And I think once people become clear about their goals, it makes it much easier to make the choices they want to make. And if, if, if my goal is to be cognitively on all the time, you know, then I, that has to be part of my routine every day is that fast right after you know, the coffee and the fast about seven to eight, but sometimes it's the whole day. It might just not be seven to eight hours. It might be the whole day if, you know, I get stuck in an airport and maybe out, you know, where there's not good food available. Is it, uh, it's got, it got MCTs? Uh, yes, it has MCT oil too. Um, but then part of technology too, I think where it adds value is when I landed in Virginia to see you guys, when I land, the first thing I do is I go to, you know, a food delivery app. And I punch in grass-fed beef. And wherever it is, it's being delivered at my hotel. So when I arrive, that food arrives at the same time. And let me tell you, Phil doesn't have like a little measly portion in that nighttime meal, man. I mean, he's he's wolf. He's wolf. <laughs> yeah, it's a fifty-dollar burger order, you know. Uh, all day now. Uh, you didn't, forget, you didn't yeah. forget all your lessons, Jim. <laughs> What's that? You didn't forget all your lessons. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. Yeah. But, you know, and Phil and I talk about that. You know, we were touching the other day, and this is a whole other subject, and I know we don't have time to get into it, but the ethnicity and what you can tolerate from what your ancestors have tolerated uh, nutritionally, nutritionally, where you were saying 
you've cut back on your vegetables and, and looking back on where your ancestors came mm. from, it was meat and milk, caribou milk, or you know what I mean? It was, yeah. It was yeah, Northern Germany is not a vegetable hotbed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have to live on Guinness and potatoes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it, Jim, for sure. Is like, and that, but that's also where, you know, people have bias when they make recommendations. Is you know what works for them may not. I mean, there's certain sound principles that work for everybody. Right. You know, but but also there are going to be variations. A lot of which are ethnicity based. Yeah. But but you you yourself are a, a, a high protein, uh, moderate to high fat, low carb guy, well, right? I say a moderate protein. Low carb and high fat. I'm, I'm probably seventy to eighty percent of my calories are fat. No traditional keto, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you trying, Phil? Just yeah. real quick, one question. You're trying to hit the uh, gram per pound of body weight. Do you go by that or? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, okay. I, uh, I, I probably get about close to a gram per pound of, of okay. protein. Okay. Um, just because I think you know when you're eating so much fat, most of the time, like it'll have, you know. Some, some protein with it if you're eating yeah. an animal-based diet. Yeah. So what do you think about uh, assimilation? You know, the, the 30 gram, you can only assimilate 30 grams and all that stuff. Um, oh, Jim. Uh, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm playing double right here. Um, you know, obviously, when they killed a woolly mammoth, they weren't like, whoa, yep. stop for a second. You right. just ate your 30 grams. Let the lion have his share. Um, you know, obviously, Phil, you can, you can assimilate more than yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I think the, you know, the challenges are a fewfold. One, a lot of those studies that made the recommendations that you can only digest 30 grams of protein at a time, that that comes from people that have renal disease, which, mm. you know, makes sense. Like if your kidneys are not operating at full capacity, you can't really um, process protein that well, and it's going to spill out through your urine. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the other problem is that. A protein is not a protein, right? And that when you have other things with it, you know, it's going to be digested over varying parts of time, particularly if you have fat, like is in a lot of animal meat, is that protein is not going to be digested right then. Right. It's going to be digested over, you know, potentially half a day. Um, and, and I think just more matter of factly, to Jim's point, like, before refrigerators and when you lived off hunting, you're not going to stop eating an animal because you're worried about it not digesting. Like you're eating as much as you can because right. you don't know when the next meal is coming. Yeah. May, may I interject? A <laughs> threat of sanity here, James. So you've met my daughter. She's four foot eleven. She weighs ninety eight pounds. So her and Brad Gillingham have the same protein digestive rate. Hmm. No, impossible. Brad has intestines that look like vacuum cleaner tubes, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're saying he can he can process more protein. Because he's a giant. He's yeah, four, of course. Of course. Yeah. Times her size. My point is that the, the across-the-board 30-gram number is a bunch of BS. Of course. Right. Like all generalizations. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that it just becomes a belief after a while. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In an urban myth that's passed down. Right. Yes, yeah, an accepted orthodoxy. Yeah. That's right. Well, listen, uh, 
obviously we could go here all day, but we've all probably got some bills to pay. So uh, maybe we should cut it there, and we can always have Phil on again. Um, Phil, how does somebody who do you who is seeking your services, uh, and how should they get a hold of you? How should they get in touch with you? Yeah, I think you know going to our website is is probably the best best way. SpartaScience.com or um, you know, the general email is info at Sparta Science, and then we can, um, from there, triage, you know, the person and their interest to the right um, person on our team, whether that's me or uh, one of my coworkers. Okay. Yeah, real interesting stuff you guys have going on there, and I really enjoyed learning about it. I appreciate you being here today, and hopefully we'll have you on here pretty soon again. Uh, in the meantime, check out Marty's weekly column and podcast, Raw with Marty Gallagher, at ironcompany.com. Most of you are now hearing us on iTunes and Spotify. Visit ironcompany.com for all your fitness equipment and gym flooring needs. Check out the hundreds of new commercial strength equipment items we just added. Pretty, pretty good stuff from racks to uh, presses, leg presses, and uh, everything in between. And finally, new Jim Steele articles can be found on uh, Iron Company in the article section. You can also check out his website, BassBarbell.com, for training, motivation, and programs. And that wraps it up, guys. That was great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, JP. Thanks, Marty. Thanks, Steele. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye.